1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5 is where we're going to be for the next bit together. If I hadn't said hello, my name is Lance, and I serve as a pastor here. It's often my privilege to, con- to look at the Bible, to consider it with you, and I so have desired, I've prayed this week, prayed that I would be of benefit to you, prayed that the words that I share and the scripture that we read together, that it would be consistent with our confession. And our confession, of course, is that these words are not dead, but they are alive. Our confession, of course, is, is that we are not alone, but that God's Spirit indwells us, that this is the church of the living God. This Pentecost Sunday, we ask ourselves, even as, even as we come to the reading of Scripture, is God not alive in our midst? Is this not His Word? Do we not have hope that we can be transformed more and more into the image of Christ. These are, these are shared confessions that we have. And I have longed this week, and I pray even now as I'm about to read, that we would experience what we profess. So I want to encourage you. Let's look not with a perfunctory obligation, but with expectation. As we look at these words and consider them, And ask that God help us to obey them and to walk in them, mostly that we'd have joy. This is the 17th verse of 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy 5, 17. It says this, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sin of, sins of others. Keep yourselves, yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot be hidden. Let's pray together. God, thank you for not leaving us alone. You've promised your presence all the way down to the end of the age. You've initiated with us graciously again and again and again, despite our rebellion, despite our sin, you step forward, you move, you have put on flesh. Jesus, thank you for your work on our behalf. Thank you for your promise that it is better that you ascend, better that you go. And Spirit of God, thank you for your empowering presence. I ask God that the the power that you've given us in your spirit, all of the the longing, the crying from our souls, Spirit of God, that you, you work in us. I ask that these longings, these cries from our souls would be aligned here this morning, that we could be one, unified. 
I pray that this would be a healing place. All of our needs, hurts, the doubts that we've brought in, the small little bits of bitterness that remain, our judging of one another, our fear of being judged, the setting sins, all of these things we've brought with us here. So we pray, Spirit of God, move to bring about a kind of peaceable, joyful, fruitful unity here. And we pray that you'd help us to understand the words of Scripture. Pray that this would be a benefit, that my words could help. We offer ourselves now wholly to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This section of 1 Timothy, really all of 1 Timothy chapter 5, has been about ordered relationships. And maybe even more than that, it's about a single word, honor. What does honor look like? And he spent, Paul, that meaning being Paul, he spent a long time thinking about how do we honor widows? And how do we honor older men as fathers? And how do we honor older women as mothers and one another as brothers and sisters? Honor seems to be the the word. And in order for the church to function the way that God designed it to function, there needs to be things put into order. And I believe that verses 17 down through the end of the chapter continue the same theme. What do ordered relationships in a church really look like? And in this case, he's going to hone in on how to honor elders. In fact, I think as a straightforward title, that's as good as we're going to get for this end of the section of 1 Timothy 5, how to honor elders. Now, a couple of words as we start. I want to say from the outset that one of the most full-throated, joyful things that I get to say about our church is I believe that we do this well. From the moment that Sarah and I first heard about Four Oaks and opportunities to minister here all the way through every single interview, down through the way that deacons and other elders and members of the congregation have treated us, I believe has been a gift. So a lot of what's happening here in the end of 1 Timothy 5, I don't want you to hear it as some sort of, hey everybody, we really need to start doing this. This is an area where I believe that we excel even in many circumstances. And so as we read through this, especially as one who is in a position of feeling called to and desiring to give my life in service of the church, in that position, I don't want it to to feel, especially for it to land on you, as though this is some kind of rebuke. That maybe, just for a little while, we could soak in, and I would want to say to you and commend you that I believe that we do this well. You know, sometimes Scripture is, uh, is really, really difficult and hard. And then there are other times where God has given His Spirit in order for us to say, well, I, I think we're doing okay. You ever been taken in the middle of a difficult test and you get to a section that you just know it? I don't know about you, but I would have a smile come over my face, like a physical smile in the middle of the test. And then you turn the page and you look down at all the, and you, you just like the hallelujah song comes down. And you think to yourself, I can do this. I can do this. And what I would say to you, not only can you do this, Four Oaks Midtown, but you have done this, and I am so grateful. And I say that not only so that this isn't a spirit of rebuke, but to tell you that in contrast to some of the statistics 
that I might talk about here in a moment, I am thankful to not be in a place where I might fall into or become a statistic. Here's some of the statistics. Thousands of pastors each and every year full-on quit ministry. And when I say quit ministry, I mean they turn and run from it in a spirit of hurt and bitterness and inadequacy with harm. Thousands of pastors every single year. Many of them leave churches in their wake where more than the number of pastors that leave close their doors each and every year. One of the most common indicators of a church that has failed and had to close its doors is an unhealthy, present, or repeated past unhealthy relationship with elders. There was not a sense of leadership. There was not a sense of honoring. There was, in fact, perhaps constant warring or back and forth. There were slights. There were not treatment of respect, but of employee and employer. I have many, many, many friends who, in moments of their weakness, in moments of their being broken, share story after story of church experiences where they felt anything but respected in the work that they were called to. I believe that this is a spiritual battleground, not only for churches who should desire to be healthy, but I believe it's a spiritual battleground because God has installed these people. We've already heard in 1 Timothy, the first verse of the third chapter, that it is a noble thing, a noble task for people to desire to rule well, to desire to serve in a position that's, that is sort of family gathering in the church. It's a noble thing, and yet it can be a terrifying thing. I believe it's a terrifying thing, not only for people who may step into it, but I believe it's a terrifying thing for the devil. And it's Pentecost Sunday, so I think I can invoke the devil. It's like a full-on spirit week. But Satan himself, I believe, targets and understands that when Jesus uttered this phrase, that if you strike the shepherd, the sheep will scatter, that this is a, an ongoing and constant battle. That it's not as though that when we become Christians and enter into the family of God, that all of a sudden we say to ourselves, wow, I have now have a perfectly redeemed relationship with authority and leadership and influence and teaching. I just love instruction now, and I'm always going to believe the best people God put in front of me. You combine that with the fact that Elders, even those who rule well, are in fact sinners and continue to be sinners in the moment that they are leading. And you have a recipe that if stirred in the appropriate way and perhaps if fomented by spiritual warfare can lead to disaster. It is so common and it is devastating for those who have committed their life to serve the church to turn and end up walking away from the church altogether. And so I believe that what Paul is trying to tell Timothy is, Timothy, I've told you over and over and over again to put elders in place. And I want you to think about not only for yourself, but to teach them to teach the church how to honor one another. And this is some of the, the ways that you're going to honor. 
one thing before we dive into the, the four areas of honoring is to note that here, like elsewhere in almost the entirety of the New Testament, the word elder here is plural. Let the elders. I believe that in addition to the ways that the church can honor eldership to make sure that leaders will be able to remain, remain and stay steadfast in their calling, one of the other things that has been installed as a protection is that God seems to see fit that no one elder would have undue dictatorial influence over a church. Maybe you've been in a church context like that, where I think some of the pressures and some of the things go wrong with people who are in leadership because they've been given the keys to, to run the church and they rule it with an iron fist of individual charisma or vision or self-aggrandizement. And so here, just at the outset, I don't want to gloss over this word before getting into how to honor these elders. I don't want to gloss over the fact that it's plural. And if I haven't made that point enough leading up to this, I believe it's one of the greatest protections that any church has for fruitful leadership or to continue in fruitful leadership. I am so grateful that I, in one of the ways that we feel loved here is that there are other elders who can pastor us as pastors. This is the, the gift. I believe it's the appropriate gift, the thing that should be aspired to. And real elders, not an elder who is de facto elder and a bunch of other people who have a title of elder, but they don't really have any kind of voice. They are there so that you can have the quota on the committee meeting, but otherwise don't say anything. And one of the ways that we've been loved well, and I think that you should hear this and feel this, we have actual real weighty elders in this place. I think especially in my experience, it's been the one place that I've served the most at Four Oaks Midtown, I believe that we have men who are not only called of God, but then faithful to the calling to study scripture, to pray through issues, to speak graciously but boldly and courageously in issues. A church that has a mere rubber stamp of a leadership team, no matter how well it goes at the beginning or how gifted any one leader is, that is a recipe for ending in disaster. So there are elders, plural. And would it be that God would give tons of them? But elders, plural, and here's what it seems like Timothy says to, or Paul says to Timothy about how to honor them. There's going to be these four categories. I started them all with C for easier recollection. The first one is going to be about compensation. He mentions compensation. Second is going to be a category of complaining. He says watch compensation, watch complaining. Third, watch correction. Think about correction in reference to elders. And then finally, careful appointment. I had to cheat on that one you know what? I'm not going to cheat anymore. It was in a bottom note, and it's a much better word, commissioning. It starts with C. Commissioning. So watch compensation, consider complaining, look at correction, and then finally, commissioning is one of the ways that you're going to honor elders. And not just elders individually. I want us to not only think about the individuals, but the, the concept of what would it look like for a church to have good leadership. Scripture is so clear that when there is good leadership, the people rejoice. When, there is, when God has provided clear voices, and strong character, and unwavering vision, 
and steadfastness in suffering, that when a people has that kind of thing, that there is benefit to them. And as a group, here are some of the ways that he says you should watch and be careful of this. First, I know that compensation is sort of a bare word, kind of a raw word, sort of business-oriented, but it seems not only likely, but I don't know any other interpretation other than Paul tells Timothy, I want you to consider well the people that are leading in your midst, what does it look like and for them to make a living? And how is that happening? So he says to them, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and in teaching. Now, it could be interpreted, and you could think to yourself, well, double honor just means extra respectful or a double thank you. And of course, that is true. It's been said that this idea of double honor is both reverence, but that not only reverence, but recompense. And the reason that we know that he has in mind some kind of how is the person going to make a living, if they commit themselves to the study of Scripture, and then more than that, to the teaching of Scripture, and then I would say much bigger than that, to walk with people as they apply the Scripture, the question becomes, well, how are they going to make a living at doing that? And it seems clear beyond any other interpretation that he has in mind actual compensation because he goes on in verse 18 and he invokes the scriptures as a whole, but then as a subcategory of scriptures, two of the most important voices that could be garnered in support. He quotes Moses from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4. It's that phrase, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. And then Jesus himself from Luke chapter 10, verse 7. I think we may have Luke 10, 7 on the screen. But as Jesus sends out his disciples from the very beginning, he tells them things like this, remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. So there's more instruction, of course, that Jesus gives. But this phrase, Paul pulls from Jesus himself and says that a laborer deserves his wages wages. It seems like Paul has in view the idea that the church should consider what it would look like to set apart men for eldering, especially those who would labor in preaching and in teaching. Now, one thing here that is, I believe, an encouragement is that this is one of the instances in the New Testament where Jesus' words are, all, are being pulled I guess you could say backwards or forward into the Bible and labeled authoritatively as Scripture. One might ask, well, how did Paul have this quote from Luke chapter 10, verse 7, when he didn't yet have the book of Luke? And so people have said, well, it seems like Paul and Luke had a very, very close relationship. In fact, it was their relationship perhaps that provided information and experience back and forth as they both wrote and led in the early church. But perhaps... Paul had already seen, like the pre-published copy of Luke or something, but he combines together the authoritative, affirmed, agreed-upon Scripture from Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 5, and then puts right alongside of it the words of Jesus. It is evidence, once again, that the apostles and the early church understood exactly what Jesus was and who he had come to represent, and that his words were to be treated and received and followed as authoritatively as any Old Testament scripture, even from the law of God itself. So the point that he has made here is that those elders who are going to serve in this particular way 
you should consider how that they might make a living in gospel ministry. Now, Paul himself had an interesting relationship with this sort of thing, and you might be saying to yourself right now, those of you who are astute and think about this and understand much of the context of the New Testament, you'd say, well, what about Paul and all of his tent making? Why would Paul commend this? Because didn't he refuse to take compensation? And it is, in fact, true that many instances, Paul of his own volition would give up the right to take anything from the people so that he would not be hindered in the freedom that he had to minister. But he does teach this consistent message elsewhere. I'm going to look for, at a section of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I'm going to start with verse 8 of 1 Corinthians chapter 9, though the context of this, what Paul instructs, starts before verse 8 and continues on after the section that I'm going to stop reading in verse 14. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul giving instruction. Now, I'm going to come back to why he's having to give this instruction in a moment because it comes with another category of how to honor elders, and it's this, he's being challenged and being critiqued. But he says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much that we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. So Paul says that in his particular ministry, he's not made use of the right, though he's arguing strongly that it ought to be a right. We have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 is an extended commentary on the instruction that Paul just gave to Timothy. Paul invokes the same two authorities. Remember, Moses said this about the ox, and remember, the Lord himself commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. The reason that I like this commentary so much from 1 Corinthians chapter 9 is because Paul makes the good point, was it for the oxen that God was concerned? And of course, the answer would be no, but he says it for our sake. And there is a benefit that the people of God receive in properly honoring those who are laboring in their midst. Now, a couple things about this. When we go to put this into, uh, into practice, I believe that there are cautions to be put into practice. One is the caution that Paul himself seems to be made very aware of, and that is sometimes when money gets involved, when compensation gets involved, things get weird. You ever notice that? Now, I don't know, this might be a total and utter surprise to you, but sometimes money is a controversial topic in the church, especially from people who are leading and like TV preacher things. You know this is a thing. I know it's a total surprise and a shock, but there are charlatans in our midst. 
And it turns out that Paul, of course, recognizes this, and he realizes that it's possible that compensation would leave one open to the charge that you were only in it for the money. This is, once again, another good reason, I believe, to have a group of elders who discuss these things to make sure that one person is not setting the limit, and unfortunately, sometimes in our midst, the lack of a limit on what compensation looks like. It could be to the negative impact of the church that someone would lord it over them by saying, I am from God, therefore I deserve X, Y, Z. And if and whenever those who are serving at God's beckoning call and serving at the affirmation of the church, if they ever, ever, ever it reeks of putting it on a church or sort of like a, man, I don't know how to, I don't know how to do this without being, see, TV preachers are easy. I'm so glad they're there. It allows us to bring up the topic and everyone's okay with hating on them. But here's the thing. That extreme of this idea of send $100 and I'll pray for you. And then, oh man, are there examples of how horrible this goes. But can we admit that all the way down from I have a TV preacher and I'll pray for you if you send money, that there are degrees back down to respectability? There can be odd ways that this comes up. There can be what we need for ministry or God told me this. Or maybe an over-demanding of certain building programs or visions. And I would just say that we should keep in view, though it is the spiritual principle that a church should desire to properly compensate and honor those who labor in their midst, that we should be careful to understand and realize that Paul knew, and it's why he mentions these things in Corinthians, discussing this passage, that we should still be careful. And it's right and a good it's a right and good thing for a church and for elders to say, well, let's not get this out of hand. Can I say the other thing that's in view here? If ministers of the gospel should be careful not to put it on people and say, well, you know, God said that we should pass the offering plate again. And that's kind of the joke. <laughs> the joke in church circles is uh, that when God speaks to you, uh, you just need to pass the plate again. You know, have you ever, is this not a I never know inside church jokes versus what normal people exist in. <laughs> anyway, so pass it around again is a common, common pastor joke for raising money. Anyway, and you know what? That should be something that people who are in this position should be careful of. You should make some sort of commitment to say, as much as possible, I will not ask for no pre nor press compensation. But here's something that I would say should be careful of those who are being ministered to. Paul seems more concerned that he would have some sort of obligation to the people because they've paid him. And there is a temptation sometimes for people to view those who God called to teach them, especially concerning things that are spiritual otherwise, that now they have an employee. And I've been in rooms before, in churches that I'm trying to serve in, where I laid out a case for something that I felt was necessary, that I'd prayed through, and I wanted to move in some particular direction. And there were a couple of men across the room who put arms across their chest, very, very confident in themselves and pleased with themselves, and said, well, you know, 
I guess it's a good thing that we could remind you that you work for us. So, basically like nice speech, but, and it was in that moment that, I mean, I just remember thinking, oh wow, this kind of thing is real. So everybody knows that the charlatan is possible, but here I thought to myself, these people think that they have a hireling. And this kind of thing can happen so often as well that a group of itching-eared people put in place someone who tells them what they want to hear and then leverages their resources to keep them in line. I remember one time that I had led a mission trip, led a mission trip with a group of young people, and God moved in the midst of the trip. We came back and we did testimony kind of stuff, and people were describing that their lives had changed and they had confessed Christ for the first time, and someone came up to me afterward and said, I just don't get it. Why don't we do trips like this every single year? I said to them, well, here's the, here's the thing. It takes a long time to raise money for this, and we do programming, and it's, it's expensive, and we don't want to have the church feel like we're constantly asking. And in that particular moment, they said, well, here's the thing. I think you should do it every single year, and I'm going to pay for it. And it was in that particular moment, I'm a young man in my early 20s, and I'm starting to realize, it was the first time I ever thought to myself, I need to be careful here. Because over the next number of months, I'd never, ever experienced someone saying, I believe in the ministry that's happening here. This should be a good thing. How many tens of thousands of dollars is it going to take? And we're going to do this every year. Now, I am grateful that in this particular instance, this family and this man, they were gracious. And I never felt like it was pressed. But I walked away from that, that lunch both excited and feeling blessed and saying, God, work and move. But also slightly terrified. And thinking to myself, I should be careful how I get involved here. Because what do I say nine months from now when the bill's been paid if so-and-so individual wants to leverage something? Wants to say, hey, now just so you know, you know, I'm really invested in this trip and here's some thoughts that I had. And I remember the exact moment walking through the parking lot to my car thinking, oh boy, God help me. And it seems like Paul is concerned at that as well, that he would never, ever, ever, ever step away from the gospel because the people demanded something and they kept his paycheck. There's a sermon by a man named Paris Reedhead. I heard when I was 19 years old. It's called Ten Shekels and a Shirt. He describes a priest in the Old Testament who gives up the calling of God and the proper administration of the sacrificial system for a cushy job of a local king or ruler who gave him a good salary. I remember this sermon just describing how despicable it was that this Old Testament priest would give up the more difficult, not as cushy life of serving God to be the personal chaplain of a rich, influential person. And that kind of thing can happen. It can absolutely happen. And it turns out that I believe this area of compensation is much like the area of leadership altogether, and that is this, that God seems to see fit to warn us of the realities of a fallen world, that sin is still here and there can be problems, but also the reality that he does not pull back from the concept, that there are certain things that we need to hold in tension because it's for our good. 
And so one of the ways to honor elders, and this is the way that Paul sets it forward, is to consider compensation. There's all kind of practical conversations in that. Uh, you should avoid as a church probably the idea that someone who is poor, you know, the idea that uh, poverty equates with holiness. I've heard it said sometimes the churches say, we need to keep our ministers poor to make them humble. And you know, probably should avoid that kind of thing. But also on the flip side, as we talked earlier, probably should make sure that they have a living that is somewhat commensurate with the people that they're ministering to so as not to benefit or profit from ministry. All right, second, I took some time with that, trying to be careful with it. A little bit of an odd thing to teach through, but it's there. Second, Paul says to Timothy, be careful in honoring elders by considering complaining. If poverty is a problem for ministers, or if compensation can be sticky, I want you to also watch complaining. And he says in verse 19, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. One of the most difficult things in doing ministry is the public nature of it. And here's a funny thing that I do. Each and every week, I invite you to consider and to search the scriptures and see if what I'm saying is true. And then more than that, I pray for you that you would take this this area of your life to be the most important to you, that you think about it a lot. And sometimes I think to myself, wow, really setting myself up for complaints or for pushback. And so Paul recognizes that there are moments when a charge should come. It's not that he says don't allow charges, but he says let's be careful about the way that they come. And oftentimes when I hear discouragement from ministers or from elders and say that they're going to step away from ministry, it is the slow, draining malaise that sets in because of drippings of complaints. More than that, we should be careful because sometimes spiritual warfare against those who serve in the church comes through false accusation. Wasn't it a Twain quote that lies are halfway around the world before the truth gets its pants on in the morning? Was that a Twain thing or did I make that up? I've met guys before that spent months of a ministry year defending themselves against one false accusation. And they described painfully how years later people still assumed that the thing that they had heard years before was true. So, Paul says to Timothy, just be careful. Make sure that there is a process in place for the way that charges are brought that we should recognize that those who are called especially into public ministry in front of a church may be vulnerable to accusation, wild speculation, and sometimes illegitimate claims. So one of the ways that we can give double honor is not only through thinking about making a living, but by protecting reputation, by being careful to make sure that our conversations are not behind the scenes constantly complaining or putting down or entertaining slander or gossip, especially about those who are called to serve. Just be careful. I hope that you have the healthiest conversations ever about the ministries of our church. I hope you think to yourself, was that helpful? Was that right? Was this this? How could we do something different? It'd be great. But be careful about the spirit of those conversations. Because you can unwittingly, you can unwittingly engage your church with a spirit 
that makes you hate your own church. I'm sure maybe I'm the only person who's ever experienced things like this. I, I don't know if you're there. But Paul says to, to Timothy, one thing you could do is to make sure that complaining and, and charges are brought with a kind of process and a certain kind of spirit. So watch complaining. Again, I don't say this as a critique uh, of you. I think for the most part, you do this well. When people speak to me about issues, I almost always tell people afterwards, you know what? It was a wonderful conversation, and I so appreciated their spirit. I mean, it's a terrible conversation because I hate talking about things like this, and no one likes to have complaints, but I'm grateful for your spirit. And Paul says to Timothy, make sure that remains. He doesn't throw out the idea of complaining, though, because he also says you can correct. As for those who persist in sin, he says, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. Here's one of the ways that you can honor elders. Don't let them serve in sin. Can I tell you another huge temptation, and I hope that you feel this and learn the lesson well? Sometimes churches believe that in the spirit of being gracious and loving, they so appreciate the person who has done ministry in their midst. They so want to honor those who have, honored, or who have walked spiritually in front of them that they overlook sin and will not rebuke. One of the best things that you can possibly do is to no longer allow ministers to make excuses for sins. It is not loving to coddle a pastor. It means that in the future, supposing there's a proper complaint that's come through a number of witnesses, and supposing you have brought these concerns, and when the person persists in sin, and wow, can pastors be stubborn, when they persist in sin, that there needs to be a strong rebuke, not privately, not a, we gave them a severance package and you'll never hear from them again and we're going to sweep it under the rug so that the testimony of the church isn't hindered in the public and we don't want to make a big stink about it. Paul says, Timothy, no, it has to be done like this. If they persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all as an example of the reality of sin. Now, this is a difficult thing. Because usually in the moment, if you have someone who is serving as an elder, is persisting in, in constant sin, this gets messy quickly. And people's feelings are involved. And how you, how you do this in an honorable way to God first and foremost, and how you rebuke gently but publicly is a difficult thing. We should ask for the Spirit of God in those moments, but we should not shrink back from those moments. We have examples all over of elders who are called to serve, who preach and teach, who persist in sin, who even are rebuked, but then continue to minister, sometimes in the same community, in the same town, and there are Christians who disobey the Bible by going to learn from them again and again and again and again. And those same Christians believe they're being loving, and Paul says, please, disabuse them of this idea. Don't coddle the elders among you. Not a good idea. And then finally, he says, here's how you can honor elders. Consider commissioning. Do so carefully. He says, do not quickly lay hands on. Don't be hasty in laying hands on, but consider their life. 
He says, the sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, the sins of others appear later. I don't know how to say this without it sounding cynical, but he basically just says, people can pretend for a long time. So be careful and don't do it too quickly. And in the same way, he says, sometimes the goodness and the character the benefit of a particular person doesn't show up until later. But be careful how you lay hands on. Judge character before gifts. Consider the outcome of their life and their maturity before you do their ability to contribute in charisma or otherwise. The old adage remains true, that especially for young people, oftentimes ambition and gifts will take them further than their character can keep them. And that this principle must be in view, be careful and not hasty in the laying on of hands. One of the ways that we do this at, at our church is that we, over the course of time, invite men that we see who have served faithfully over the course of a number of years, usually in ministries like leadership of Scripture or teaching, oftentimes through community group leadership, we would invite men who over the course of years who have endured suffering, who have gotten into some scuffles and maybe even been a little bit put out, but have forgiven and not only given forgiveness, but also have forgiven others. Men who have maintained a testimony of their faith in Jesus. Men who have exhibited shepherding. And we invite them and not hastily in the moment, we invite them, usually over the course of 12 to 15 months, to say, would you pray with us? Are you aspiring to lead in this particular way? And would you pray with us? We are just finishing up this month a 14-month process of talking with two men and having them come through and reading a series of eight or nine books and meeting with them and, them and their wives and considering if God is calling them to serve in this particular way. It's one of the ways that we're trying to be faithful to what Scripture says here. Don't do this in a hasty manner. And so we assess, and we pray, and we think. And all of this is a way that we honor the, not only the task, but the role of eldering in our midst. Paul has told Timothy, Timothy, if you want the church to flourish, it turns out that God has tied our joy in the church, not in full, but in part. In part, our flourishing as a church will be tied to our ability to properly organize and set in order elders, to consider them rightly, to compensate them fairly, to not complain against them without just willy-nilly, to boldly correct them, even publicly when necessary, and then finally, to be careful and slow about appointing them. And here's the thing that I would ask, one, that you hear me and you believe me, that we feel the kind of smile that comes over us on a part of the test that I believe God's given grace for us to pass. You have been so gracious. I mean, I can only speak for myself. Maybe the rest of the elders are floundering. <laughs> I don't know. But every time, a week ago or two ago, I was with 190 or so people, most of them lead pastor and wives. And again and again and again, what I got to do was to describe the graciousness and the kindness of the church that I got to serve. I hear horror story after horror story, and I don't tell them, but I'm giddy inside, and it helps me think to myself, oh, wow, I don't have it that bad. 
that's amazing. I don't have it that bad. So I want to tell you, I commend you before God and others in this area. But also, too, let's not grow weary in doing good. Let's believe that God has tied our flourishing as a church to the leadership that he has put in place and consider how to properly honor them, not only now, but for the long haul. Let's pray. God, would you help us to get authority right? I feel the weight of this. God, I think through all the examples that could be, using, could be used of how this goes wrong, abuses of authority are rampant on both sides. And so I pray, Spirit of God, would you continue to do a good work in our midst? I pray that as a church, that we would esteem and honor and desire good leadership in our midst. I pray that as a church, we would be loving enough to call out sin, even in our elders. And God, I pray as elders that you would keep us from sin, that you would help us to consider our calling to serve faithfully, to labor well, to rule well, to see ourselves in the spirit of Jesus as servants down to the core. So I thank you for the instruction that we receive in Scripture. I pray that we could apply it now and that we would have faith to believe it's to our benefit. So help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.